How's that for an intro? For Big Sid, from Max Roach. Hey there, everybody. It's The Late Set from WRTI. I'm Greg Bryant. And I'm Nate Chenen. We are celebrating a big centennial, really one of the biggest that you'll see this year, because the inimitable drummer, composer, band leader, spokesperson, activist, we'll get to all that, Max Roach, his birthday was January 10th, 1924, and man, what a legacy he left. We heard it right there in that song. I mean, there's drums before Max, there's drums after Max. And when you improve on the language of folks like Cozy Cole, Big Sid Catlett, Chick Webb. Baby and you, Dodds. And you have the gall to do it. Yeah. And people follow you. Well, that is that is sort of the true definition of avant-garde, right? Yep. Because the avant-garde is supposed to be leading the way. And, and if anything is truly avant-garde, it then becomes commonplace. It then becomes part of the mainstream language. And that is exactly what Max Roach did. Exactly. His innovations on the drum set, it not only changed the vocabulary of the instrument, the function of the instrument, it changed what I want to call the disposition hmm. of the drum set. Mm -hmm. um, an attitude, a, a sort of a way of being. And when you say that there was drums before and after Max, I mean, nothing is truer because what he articulated and the way that he put it together, um, I mean, it, it, it left no option but to learn from and absorb his example. You're right about it. He brought the drums from the rear to the front. And no disrespect to people like Buddy Rich or, you know, the aforementioned Chick Webb, um, who led his own contributions to, to, to modern music. But I think when you have someone who's as galvanizing a force as Max Roach, in the face of fellow improvisers and innovators mm -hmm. like Bird and Dizzy, and to be their, I wouldn't say companion, but their peer in the truest sense of the word, he's as important as they were. Absolutely. You know, I want to get to that, but first, okay, we we entered talking about the drum set specifically, right? Mm -hmm. And we heard a little of Max's um, really a, a kind of chamber approach to solo percussion. Yeah. Um, he really is the first person you think of when mm -hmm. you think about the, the drum set as a solo instrument. And so I want to talk about that that vocabulary. And thinking about his concept, not just his technique, which was formidable, but his his approach. Yeah. Um, there's a there's an interview he did on January 3rd, 1986, uh, with our friend Ben Sidron. Ah, uh, yeah. And um, it's part of the Talking Jazz Oral History Project. You can find it online. There's, there's one particular part of this conversation that I think is so germane to our discussion. And, and so I just want to uh, cue it up now. So this is Max. This is a little, a little shy of his birthday that year in 1986, talking with Ben Sidron. I, I would say the drum set is the only instrument that came out of the United States of America's experience instrumentally that grew out of that. It's the, only, it's the only one that's, that if you, if you, when you look at percussion across the board, across the world, Africa, Europe, the Middle East, the Far East, South America, the drummers don't play with their feet. 
You see, the drummer, the United States of America, I say USA drummer, because, of course, there's a whole South American and Mexican-American area of playing the instruments, percussion instruments. Well, we are like one-man percussion ensembles, and and that instrument is really homegrown USA, the, uh, the drum set itself, trumpets and saxophones and violins and pianos and and uh, congos. All the other instruments come out of another part of the world. But mm-hmm. that, that instrument really is a USA instrument. It's probably the only original instrument that came out of the USA's experience. What I hear him saying in that is that it's stately, but it's also street. Mm. We must get the job done. We'll do it any means necessary. But there is this uh, dignity in having the technical ability to be able to be um, creative and precise on each one of these pieces of this drum set. But where was Max Roach born? Brooklyn, New York. Mm-hmm. You feel the Brooklyn in for Sid. Right. I know I do. Right. To, to take these traditional elements mm-hmm. and to take uh, what is known about you know, a musical instrument and its expression, and to say, well, what if I hook up this contraption? Yeah. <laughs> what, what, yeah. If, what if I do, hey, you know, I'm doing all this drumming, but, like, my foot's not involved. <laughs> like, let's get my foot involved somehow, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, thinking about those marching band drummers, you know, thinking about what what goes down the street in New Orleans. That's and right. Like, well, how can I do all of that but just be me? Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah. And it's such a, I mean, I would argue that, that, Max's reading of this is is correct, and I and I'd say maybe the the next instrument in that pantheon might be the turntable. You I know can what I see mean? exactly where you're going with that, Nate. Um, it's funny you went forward. I went back to someone like Art Tatum, mm-hmm. who heard these piano rolls and he's playing all of these parts, written for two, but it's one guy manifesting this vision. I think that's Max. You just mentioned that street parade. You know, you hear the street parade, uh, you hear the carnival. You hear the club, but you also hear the concert hall. I really can't put my finger on it, mm-hmm. but there's this 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 matching of of this kingly presence that Max was. Yeah, and again, somebody who was willing to stand on the corner and teach the children. So you mentioned Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie a minute ago. I, I wanted to agree with you mm-hmm. in saying that you know he was not just a peer. I want to say he was a fellow combatant. <laughs> but, you know, the, the fact is, some of the most mm. important figures in the history of this modern music, Charlie Parker, Dizzy Gillespie, Sonny Rollins, yeah. Abby Lincoln, mm. you cannot talk about them without talking about Max Roach. And he was not just the rhythm engine. Right. He was really out front in each of these instances. You know what I mean? Mm. What he was doing was so virtuosic that he could be on the bandstand with one of the most thrilling uh, geniuses on his instrument ever in Charlie Parker or Dizzy Gillespie and not have his thunder stolen. (laughs) (laughs) He could actually be on that bandstand at times and be the most exciting person on the stage. And when you're doing that next to Clifford Brown in his prime? Scary. Scary. Tell me about it. Yeah, (laughs) that's super scary. And to raise the bar further than that, to be as creative and definitive as to where when you hear a tune like Un Poco Loco, mm. you're not really playing it right, just approaching the harmony right. or the melody. You have to do the Max Roach thing. 
Let's hear some of that right here. Un poco loco. Bud Powell featuring Max Roach. when you hear it pretty much from note one and that's true of you know it's it's funny it's also true of a song like Sonny's original recording of St. Thomas 100% Max is not playing a traditional calypso on that you know A section of that tune he's playing a Max Roach beat you know (laughs) that's right Um, and there's so many examples of that in the literature you know but he was really an incredible catalyst in the same way that you would call someone like his friend Elvin Jones a catalyst, yes. right? But, there, you know, I think what we're struggling to say, both of us, is like just how out front he was mm-hmm. in any band and on any bandstand, mm-hmm. you know? Um, the drummer is conventionally at the back of the orchestra mm-hmm. or the back of the bandstand. Yeah. You know, Gene Krupa changed that to a certain extent, but Max Roach did too. He did. You know? When people talk about bebop, right? Mm-hmm. Very often they talk about the harmonic complexities of this music, mm-hmm. which are real. Yeah. And it is a very distinctive legacy of, of the bebop innovations, modern jazz innovations. But I kind of feel like bebop was first a revolution in rhythm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, along with his peers and, and forerunners like Kenny Clark, Max Roach was the guy. You've got it absolutely right. There's no way to get around it. Um, and unfortunately, pedagogically, many of our players maybe um, are taught in reverse. But I think it's almost okay to sound sad if you've got your rhythm together and then learn <laughs> harmony because at the bedrock of this creation is exactly what you said. If we don't have the rhythm, we don't have anything. And I think about moving forward in our current era. You know, you're a journalist, I'm a broadcaster, but in this podcast medium, People want to hear from us. They want to know about us. Mm. They want to know more of our personality, maybe, than we're able to reveal in an article or on a radio show. But Max always was himself, so much so that he was willing to take the liberation beyond the music. And you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. Well, really a lifelong advocate, activist, someone who was not only not afraid to put protest front and center, but really compelled to do so. And I think, you know, there are many examples of this, both in his statements on the page Mm -hmm. and in interviews and in the music itself, you know, the way that he, the way that he framed it, the kinds of musical statements he made, it so happens that his life and career follows a particular arc of liberation in the black experience. Mm -hmm. And Greg, I'd love to hear how you were taught that story, um, you know, with Max being very much an active presence when we were kids. Right, right. I think on our early trip to the library, um, I remember getting, it was really a picture book of jazz luminaries. And here's Max Roach. You know, he looks, as we've described, stately, in control. But in reading more about his biography and, you know, early on, the decision to tell the truth about 
what was going on in his life, mm-hmm. not let the groove stop at the art. You know, Nina Simone said it best later, you know, the art must reflect the times. Well, Max Roach was a little bit before that. Mm-hmm. And the record that I immediately wanted to hear was the Freedom Now Suite. Mm-hmm. Um, the imposing uh, photography, having learned at that same time about civil rights and you know, lunch demonstrations, here's the exact image of that. What must these grooves on this record sound like if yeah. this is the, the cover photo? And very quickly, you know, you get ancient to the future yet again through one uh, Maxwell Roach. You know the tune on this that we have to play. Yeah, I think I think I do. Um, we're gonna hear a little bit of Freedom Day. Yeah. Freedom Day from the Freedom Now Suite. As much as I love triptych and the complexities of just drum and voice, I think for the uninitiated and the initiated, Freedom Day, if forced to choose one tune from this album, Mm -hmm. encapsulates the yearning of this album, of this time, 1960 we're talking about, going into 1961. There was a lot in the water, a lot in the air, but in our ears was Max Roach, urging us to keep going. Put one foot in front of the other. Don't let it stop you. And it's a relentless groove, a relentless message that needed to be heard in the face of um, some adversarial situations in the business, and I'm sure even among his peers. Yeah. Just just saying it plain, Yeah. right? Um, this is the struggle. We know we are on the right side. We know we're going to move the needle mm-hmm. and we are going to take our indisputable excellence, our our musical genius as collaborators, as members of a community. We're taking that excellence and we are weaponizing it mm-hmm. for the cause. Yeah. As high as I can fly as a musician, it has a higher purpose. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and he um, he embodied that really throughout his entire career it's it's a it's an incredible and, and quite daunting example to look to and it continues to inspire generations and this is a good time to to mention Greg we had a one of my favorite conversations that you and I have ever had together with a musician uh, recently we sat down with the great Nasheed Waits uh, he came through Philadelphia as a member of uh, Christian McBride's new John and as transfixed as we were on the complete quartet, uh, there were times in that concert that I felt the spirit um, and the excellence of Max Roach from Nasheed Waits. Mm-hmm. And as we would learn, and as you'll hear, Max gave Nasheed some direct tutelage. And in this generation, one generation or two removed from original bebop masters. Um, the very young Nasheed Waits had a very unique opportunity to be uh, mentored, encouraged, uh, and given opportunity 
uh, by Max Roach. And we should note that um, if you are hearing this podcast in time, Nasheed has organized uh, a really incredible centennial tribute to not only Max Roach, but we insist. Yeah. The, the Freedom Now Suite. This concert will take place on Friday, January 26th at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center. It will feature Cassandra Wilson, Robbie Coltrane, Sonia Sanchez, Saul Williams. Uh, really an incredible assemblage and and one that feels, you know, person person by person, like wildly appropriate to uh, the, the project at hand. This might be the concert of the year. Um, don't miss out. If you're anywhere near Newark, New Jersey, uh, make your way, make your plans. Max Roach will be remembered in the moment. This isn't just a historical thing. We will see the immediacy and intention of Max Roach on that night. I believe it. Let's hear from Mr. Waits. We are privileged to have Nasheet Waits join the late set. And we're on location today at the Annenberg Center uh, here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, shout out to all the wonderful folks that make these concerts happen. And when somebody as busy as Waits comes to town, number one, you better be there and you better have your recorder nearby. So we're glad we caught up to you, my man. <laughs> no, no, thank you for having me. Pleasure. Yeah, this is a real late set vibe because we just experienced the early set of the new John, fantastic performance. And so we are all buzzing from this shared experience that we just had with, with your sound in our space, in our ears. So it's really kind of my favorite way to have a conversation. You know, I feel like we're in the kitchen at the Vanguard right yes, now, you yes, know? Yes, yes, yes. Uh, so thank yeah. you, man, for, for making time for us. No, 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 y'all are some of my favorite people and one that y'all are keeping the, uh, the culture and one that alive. So, so I appreciate y'all as well. 2024, as we all know, marks a very important centennial. Uh, this is the 100th birth anniversary of Max Roach, one of your heroes, one of our heroes. And so this is, this is why we could not miss this opportunity. We wanted to be sure to tap into somebody who, who really understands that legacy, probably more than almost anybody alive. So I want to jump in with the first question. I told Greg, I've got one. Yes. I've got, got yes. an opening question. Yes, let's jump in. Um, as I think about the legacy of Max Roach, I almost think about two tracks. Mm -hmm. um, when people talk about his genius, his greatness, and depending on where you want to begin, you know, it's one or the other. One is he is, of course, percussive innovator, a genius drummer, somebody who changed the way that this instrument was played and changed the way that it functioned in a band. And then on the other hand, you have this fearless, influential, um, really powerful voice for civil rights, someone who was at the forefront of activism and protest and, you know, really talking sense into America. And, and these two things, it's like you shift gears talking about them, right? Yes. Um, I have a hunch that you would make the argument that those two things are actually completely one thing, one and the same. Oh, so, so tell me if oh, I'm yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I mean, we're all complex uh, people, as you know, uh, complex entities. 
And uh, he was a combination of those things that you were talking about, mm-hmm. amongst many others, you know, myriad others. But those things were, were uh, primary components to his, uh, his makeup and his contribution to uh, society at large. And to me personally, uh, to my family, you know, he was like a godfather to me, you know, like a mentor and really close friend of my father's. When I was growing up, it was I took all those experiences and uh, alliances and uh, connections that my father had for granted, like I'm sure we all did. They were mm-hmm. just family friends, you know. I was like, oh, that's like my uncle, you know. See him hang out, and my father going to do these concerts with these incredible musicians. But it didn't resonate with me like that until I got to be older. Mm. And as you get older, you be- <laughs> then you become more aware, like, oh my goodness. This is royalty right here that yeah. I'm sitting in the car with and like, you know, saying, no, 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 I think you want to make a left right here. He was looking at me like, <laughs> shut up. But he was, but he never did that. You mm. know, I, I got a, I got an opportunity. That's what I'm saying. I had an opportunity to spend a lot of time like that, you know, just going places. He, mm. he would um, hire me, <laughs> quote unquote, mm. to uh, set up his drums and things like that. But it was really just to be around him and uh, make sure I was okay, put a little money in my pocket, check in on me, see where my head was at, you know, because this is after my father had passed away. Mm. He passed away when I was pretty young, 19. That's probably one of the other reasons that I'm playing, because I didn't go to school for music Mm. uh, when I was in uh, high school and in college. I came back up to New York, and I was around him, and he was, I was watching him, you know, so like, just to see all that, all that, uh, that magistry and whatnot, on the instrument up close though, that type of uh, access is uh, rare and I don't take it for granted. And I feel I feel uh, so blessed to have been able to, that he allowed me in that space. Mm-hmm. But uh, like I said, we were like family. I went to his, his twin daughters are like my sisters. I went to high school with them. I went to prom with, with, <laughs> with one of his, you know, we're like straight family, you know? So with that family vibe, was he not, uh, a teacher to you or or did he bring that in too he was a teacher but in a way where i mean like i said once i became aware of all the innovations that he had made it like you said on the instrument it was like it, it, he was the master in terms of a lot of that language a lot of that understanding mm-hmm. infusing the uh, uh musics and rhythms from the different cultures around the world india and caribbean infusing it to the african-american experience he was like the first and foremost so i would start asking him questions and he was never he taught me in the way where he made me he made you look inside yourself for the answers to your questions he was like watch what i'm doing and then every time i would try to emulate or talk about something he would say well (laughs) he would steer (laughs) me back in the direction of like really Mm -hmm. investigate on uh, that on your own they were very supportive, you know, people like him, my father, Michael Carver, I studied uh, drums with him. He was like my only formal drum teacher. Mm-hmm. But even him, they, there was a certain mysticism in their answers to the questions that you asked them. And that made me understand that that's because there is a mysticism in the music that we're dealing with. There are answers to the questions, but these answers are filtered through your experiences and filtered through how you're a vessel operates in the universe Mm -hmm. and everybody's is different and he was like have faith in what your path is because that's where the truth is he was like you're not going to access the truth Mm -hmm. from emulating me or emulating a father or 
or anybody else. You have to be true to yourself. Yeah. Uh, and if you do that, and and you you know keep your eyes open and stay active, you'll be okay. So I mean, he was very encouraging in that manner, but not in a manner where he told me a whole bunch of stuff to do. He was just like, you know, stay on your path, no, keep doing what you're doing, but not like. Yeah, I, went, I was trying to, believe me, I, <laughs> I was trying to get the secrets. I was like, hold on, I know you know the secrets, come on. <laughs> and he was like, no, 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 young neophyte. <laughs> and, and this Take era, so, yeah. so this would have been like yeah. mid-80s, mid, mid-80s to early 90s? This was early right? 90s. This early was, 90s. This is okay. like early 90s right. when, I, when I was early 90s. And uh, I mean, incredible experiences. Just, just like I said, I can remember, you know, him... Uh, he was developing a, a memorial to Miles Davis mm. and he was listening to Bitches Brew and he was having conversations with Maya Angelou and I was like, you know, I'm just oh, a fly on the wall. Whoa. You know, just like sitting there like, wow. Yeah. But I didn't even, I, I, didn't, I still didn't even realize the gravity of that then that uh-huh. I do now. Mm-hmm. You know, now I'm like, oh my goodness, you know. Yeah. And then just hearing how he was conceptualizing these different events. Um, he was the first person who told me about the massacre in Tulsa 1920 mm-hmm. he I hadn't heard about that because he was saying like when he would travel he was like you know a uh, young man when you go out here and start traveling on the road go to the library and see what's happening from that area you know check out the people check out what's happening he said because you know you're not going to learn anything in the hotel then you get a, a sense of what's happening in the in the in the area what the people have been dealing with it gives you a different perspective when you when you hit the stage. And he was like, and I learned about this through uh, going to the library. He was like, you know, they bombed us. And, and I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I had never heard about this. So this is like 20 years before, like all these movies and stuff mm-hmm. that are coming mm-hmm. out about, you know, and about that consciousness in terms of what happened to, uh, to the folks down in Tulsa uh, some years ago, almost 100 years ago. So, I mean, he was he was that type of person who was always learning. Mm-hmm. And then teaching in the way where he was like, "Let me hand you the book," you know. But he wasn't somebody who's was gonna read the book for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> he right. was, you know. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. There's also a thing where sometimes you encounter somebody who says, "You don't, you don't know that." Oh, you know, like there's a sort of judgment. Right. And it sounds like he was very encouraging and non-judgmental about what you didn't know. Yeah. Exactly. He 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 understand. He understood that this is a uh, it's a marathon, not a sprint, and you have to have uh, a certain amount of endurance and dedication to the task, and uh, that dedication has to be um, cultivated. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Slowly, right? Yeah. So that's what they was the encouragement was like. No, this isn't a sprint, yeah, man. I ain't, it ain't like a microwave. Like I'm just gonna give you the answer, and all of a sudden you're gonna be able to play. You know that that's not that the way it is, which is true. You know when you because you're instrumentalist, Greg, and you know how 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 that works. It's like you can have a lesson and and get the information, but until you actually put it in your fingers and execute it several, you know, thousand times or whatever, does it become like ah? Does it become like then you then you discover the then it opens up some doors for you, but mm-hmm. it's not like immediate. So so his his whole uh, approach was, you know, watch. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm I'm, le- I'm letting you see what's happening now. I don't want to put words to it because sometimes when you put words to it, that also puts a ceiling on your understanding of what that is. You know, you're like, okay, I'm just gonna take it for that, and that's then that's it. 
but where it could be expressed in a lot of different ways if you let it if you let it filter through through you um that that's where it's really gonna um take shape mm-hmm. and be uh real and yeah. be a real representation uh and he was all about the real as you can tell i mean he was a, a supreme originator you know when you hear his stuff it was like a couple of beats you're like oh that's who that is well i feel like you're cut from the same cloth um, and um i've been privileged to um play with you in a couple of different situations and i've learned volumes just from our few interactions uh one thing i learned early on was everybody needs to count it's just not the drummer's <laughs> responsibility that's one thing the the second thing that you kind of talked about earlier was signature knowing that it's nasheed waits when i hear him right away i don't even have to see him ain't no youtube i can hear three bars that's nasheed on the drums when you encounter Max Roach, and you got a chance to even set up his instrument. Were there any particular quirks or qualities physically with the drums? And then when you hear him play, that right away as a young listener, you were like, yep, that's Max. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's there's, there's certain like combination things that you hear that you're like, ah, you know, and those, and they, and I don't even know if it, if it's it's just individual to him. It's like the way that he it could be any instrument, but the way he touches the instrument, mm-hmm. it's him, you know. It's it's him, and it's like that with Blakey and Philly and Tony, my father, you know, uh, Michael, you know, uh, those those kind of Ed Blackwell. It's like you hear it and you're like, oh yeah, that's who that is. You know, they have a like a they have a certain relationship with the with the instrument and the music, um, that is uh, it's personal unto them. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And another thing too, I think that's really hip. I'm glad you raised uh, Brother Frederick Waite's name. Uh, He was a member of the illustrious Umboom Ensemble. Umboom, yes. And you were as well in the early 90s, right? I I got a little taste. Yeah, you did. I got a a little (laughs) taste. I got got some hazing. I guess I got hazed and whatnot (laughs) up in the the Umboom. Oh my goodness. And that was a beautiful place to receive that that uh, that treatment yeah. <laughs> yeah. from those yeah. masters. I mean, that was yeah, that's an incredible uh, group. But but what were the rehearsals like? Like, how much did you have to learn before you got to the thing? And then how much of it was intuitive once you guys got on the stage? Well, they they, they no, they knew, everybody knew their parts. There was no like, there was no intu- I mean, intuitive, yeah, but there was a lot of music being played uh, in that in that unit so there was always specific things happening whether it was texturally or melodically or harmonically or rhythmically there was there were, everybody it was like very intricate actually and the fact that there was no music made it even more challenging but that's the lesson i was learning by watching him he was like watch because I'm not writing anything down or anything like that. Watch, right? So it was the same thing with Umboom. It was like, listen, pick up what you need to know, and then that's what's happening because there ain't going to be no charts or music stands or whatnot out here. And everybody, like I said, everybody's very supportive. You know, you know, you learn your things from every from everybody. You know, everybody tell, tell you a little something. And, you know, it was uh, incredible. You know, Dr. Fred King was another percussionist in that group. He was like my godfather as well. And he was a master percussionist from Iowa. <laughs> and he was working down in Puerto Rico with uh, Pablo Casals, the uh, incredible cellist in the orchestra down there. And that's where he first encountered Max, because Max was working with Abby. It was like, you know, cabaret type stuff, you know, like uh, uh, how Cuba was, that type of thing, but Puerto Rico. And then he met my father down there too, 
Uh, this is like late 60s when my father was working with Ella Fitzgerald. So he encountered both of them. So he was like a primary member of that group as well. All those people, Warren Smith, Joe Chambers, Roy Brooks, they all pulled my coat at one time or another and were like, you know, in, in the group, they were like, you know, very, it was nerve-wracking, <laughs> <laughs> to be quite honest, to be in that situation. I, I mean, and and I got in there because I was roadieing on a performance that they were doing in Sevilla, in um, the south of Spain. And this is 92, because it was the World's Fair was happening, right? It was a concert with uh, some flamenco troupe, so singers and some uh, people are playing the guitar and so forth and uh we were rehearsing out in this in the mountains in the sun like 110 degree heat but you know i was young i didn't care i was like yeah this is great everybody else was salty <laughs> i was like having a good time people were like Phew. they were uptight so um so i got the opportunity to play this rhythm because nobody else wanted to do it I was like, oh. and i was like okay i got up there and max was like all right so now you're gonna play on the show i was like oh man wow. so now i got it so i did that and maybe a couple of other things you know they had me maraca all right man we'll play them with cowbell in this i was like all right all right cool and then i like that kind of like crept me in so then i became like not only the person who dealt with like the cartage <laughs> but then i also got a chance to tap the instruments and then like a couple of years after that i i, I did there's a lesson in this young musicians listening right now that's there is a saying. lesson that's you know don't, don't don't balk at uh that's at carting saying. things around and, and don't you complain when it's 110 and maybe no. you'll get your shot that's right you never know, you never know about i was so happy yeah be there. i didn't care there's a an american masters documentary that mm -hmm. we've all seen called the drum also waltzes and my favorite part of this film was actually the um boom mm -hmm. section because the footage is so illuminating mm -hmm. and it was a, a part of his story that I didn't know as well as I as I wanted to right and one thing that really strikes me about that ensemble and what it meant in the arc of Max's career is that there is simultaneously this sort of chamber group level insistence on proper presentation and proper respect and all of this with like the deepest earthiest folk information yeah. you know and it's it's like well, refusing well, to choose one or the other it's like no this is all one thing well right? yeah and it's also a um to echo what you're talking about it's um it's it's like it even and because it's this it needs to be recognized as this as well right right, right. because of the folk it needs to be it needs to be on this plateau as well along along with the chamber music and all that other you know mm -hmm. all these other music is on that same level it needs to be respected and observed as and such. especially as percussion mm -hmm. and as drums that was it's like you're fighting that was the intent of yeah. of that i mean that was always one of the uh he was also an activist in on the bandstand mm -hmm. because you know he was always talking about the drums are he said, he was like, he said the drums are the nigger of the band. Mm. You know what I'm saying? And, mm. it, and, and he was like, that's the way they treat us this year. Mm. <laughs> okay. Like, you know? Yeah. And he was, and yeah. so he meant that. And so you understand, of course, with his, you know, all the uh, work he did with the civil rights, what that meant. 
you know, it's like they take you for granted. You're second class. And that's exactly the way, you know, a lot of people treat you. You know, charts, you know how they treat, you know how you treat us, Greg. <laughs> you'll, you'll hear it. You don't need anything. And then talk about your best. You'd be missing everything. You'd be like, I didn't even have any music. <laughs> Not at all. Not at all, folks. <laughs> but, 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 um, but you know how that, that, that type of mentality. Mm, yeah. So he was always, you know, even with the Clifford Brown group, you know, he was soloing just as much as everybody else, you know, and they're always talking about him being melodic and he was like yeah i played shapes and colors and phrases and you know trying to make it let people know that we're not just backup exclusively like that is a component of our function but not the exclusive so mm -hmm. he was always about observing the musicianship of of the drummer so Um Boom was like a way to really express that. It was like, okay, now we're not going to use anything else except percussion, and we're going to deal with all these elements of harmony and, and melody as well mm -hmm. as rhythm. So it's yeah. not, not going to always be loud. You know, it's like if people think about, you know, all drums together, and I think it's going to be a competition. People are going to be trying to out-battle each other. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was the exact opposite of that. Like they really were about, I learned a lot about texture and about, the meanings of your actions mm. you know everything has every strike of the drum you know they were like no 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 strike the drum here like oh, i'm playing the bass drum. they were like no 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 i'm thinking it's a bass drum part okay boom that was quarter notes in the bass drum cool they were like no 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 there was always a, a technique and a way to approach every situation where you optimize the sound or you were in tune with the sound a cowbell mm -hmm. i learned about the importance of the cowbell and how it, that's like the hardest position on the on the gig and whatnot because you have to keep the tempo and keep that thing happening and uh, when you're playing like a little intricate rhythm over and over and over again for like 10 minutes straight it gets hypnotic mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> i've been mm -hmm. like i was playing and every time i'll be like am i playing this right wait a minute is this the tempo <laughs> what's going on hey, but yeah. then there's like 10 other people looking at you like don't fuck up <laughs> <laughs> You know? Yeah. So I mean, yeah. it, it's it's um, I learned a lot early. Right I was on. exposed to a lot of of the uh, discipline within that freedom that you were talking about. Because mm -hmm. like when you hear it, it's like, oh, it sounds you know so spacious. Yeah. But there was a lot of thought being. But even into that piece that I, they were showing in the documentary, they were playing the body parts mm -hmm. and they were mm -hmm. playing. Mm -hmm. They were there was different sounds that they were getting from the body, and they were like, be attentive to what you're what your neighbor is doing or what you're doing. You mm -hmm. know, it's not just every, pay attention to the sound that you're creating. Mm -hmm. And regards to the whole sound, is that what's needed? You know, it was about opposites and, and polar attractions and things of that nature. I was like, mm -hmm. okay, this is, this, is, this is heavy. Yeah. In, in terms of music, mm -hmm. uh, it, it reflects uh, our time on the planet. Wow. Absolutely. You know, if you're trying to be in tune with it to keep it rotating. <laughs> <laughs> now, at some point in this concert tonight, as I was taking in your hookup with Christian McBride, mm -hmm. I was thinking about how many hookups I've witnessed with you on the bandstand over the last, you know, 25 years or so, you know, so bassists and drummers, right? I'm sitting in a room with a bassist and a drummer right now. Right. You know, Nasheed, I, you know, I think about you and I think about how deeply you connect with Christian, how deeply you connect with Taurus Mateen, with Eric Rivas. I could go on and on, but yeah. it's a specific thing, right? And so I wanted to ask you an interesting question about Max, because when I think about Max's hookup with great musicians, 
I tend to think about horn players, mm. about Max and Charlie Parker, Max and Sonny, right, Max and right. Clifford Brown. I don't automatically go to the bass. And I wonder if you can tell me why we don't think of him the way we think of, say, Elvin and Jimmy Garrison. You know what I mean? Yeah. Why do we not talk about Max in conjunction with his bass partnerships? Oh, yeah, that's an interesting question. That's a good question. Good question there, Nate. Because um, <laughs> I've never thought of that one myself. It, it, you know, I'm like, I haven't mm -hmm. thought of it either. And you, know, I feel like sometimes that has to do with popularity of the musician, mm. you know? So, like, you know, like how a lot, like, in, in the John Coltrane Quartet, for example, like, you think of McCoy and Elvin a lot I mean, of course, you think of Jimmy in the in the context of that quartet, but then outside of that quartet, like McCoy and Elvin did a lot mm -hmm. more, and like in combination, they were mm -hmm. like in combi on a lot of those classic Blue Note recordings. Like yeah. the whole Jimmy wasn't uh, Mr. Garrison wasn't represented as much in in that way, and I think the majority of those bass players that Max played with kind of fall into that category, unless you talk about like Oscar Pettiford, you know. But that's that wasn't like the. Uh, the majority mm -hmm. of, of the work that, that he did. So if he had just done a little bit more with Mingus. Or, or so, you know, <laughs> and, and that, exactly, exactly. You know, mm -hmm. and, um, that's right. Or Mingus, or, you know, like there were times, but it wasn't like that was the, it, and he was also, and I think maybe also what might also, even though, I mean, Elvin was innovative too, um, is, is because he was so innovative, Max himself. And yeah. it was just so mm -hmm. like, Mm -hmm. on like awe-inspiring like kind of just focusing on that <laughs> yeah. in the rhythm section yeah you know i mean it just seemed yeah. like what he was doing was so revolutionary and innovative that that was taking the focus to a large degree and i think maybe the at least during the charlie parker period and dizzy gillespie period and, and up in there kind of the function of the bass was kind of you know it wasn't it wasn't like you know ron carter or, mm -hmm. or jimmy garrison for that right. matter in terms of the the voice that they had, you know, e even like, you know, it wasn't like he, he was with somebody like Paul Chambers, you know, or anything like that either. But, um, yeah, yeah. Good question. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Good question. I was thinking about that. Too. I'm like, yeah, how did that? Yeah. But yeah, I mean, I, I think that's what, but for me, I think that that might have mm -hmm. contributed, contributed to that. Yeah. I think too about him as Max Roach as a composer. Um, and we got to hear your tune <laughs> Moonchild tonight with the Christian McBride. Uh, new John, did Max lend you any diamonds about composition or melodicism away from the drums, how to kind of construct original ideas? Yeah, he told me, spend some time at the piano. <laughs> like, he was like, he said, yeah, there's people out here who can teach you this stuff. That's what he told me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. He was like, there's people out here who can teach you this stuff, man. It's, you know, he was like, but he was like, but, but he did, he did encourage me to do it. He was like, Spend some time at the piano. Start start dealing with the piano. He was like, start dealing with the piano. He said because um, it's it's important. It's a, it's gonna lend its uh, make you understand music in a whole di different way. So he was like, just just take it. He was like, you know, just like you practice the drum, practice the you know, take some time. What he was like, it's not. And like I said, with everything, they always make it seem like it's not difficult. You know, it's like somebody telling you, oh, Spanish, that's easy. You can pick, that's not easy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like, now you pick that up. But that was the attitude mm -hmm. that they had. They're like, if, you, if you're willing to put the time in, then it will show the results. And it was like, I take an hour a day, you know, you'll pick it up in no time, you know. And you're like, okay, but it's true. 
it's true. You know, you pick an hour a day doing anything, but a couple of months, you 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 have some experience, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. doing that thing. So yeah, he he was he was very encouraging in that regard. That's real. And when you talk about his compositions, one of the most iconic bodies of work that he created was "We Insist," "Freedom Now Sweet." A really landmark statement for so many reasons. We don't have to elucidate them here. But I wanted to ask you about that piece as a compositional statement in light of the fact that you are about to lead a concert tribute to this work at NJPAC. Um, so, like, bring us into it. Like, what can you tell us about the way he put this together? Well, it was an um, commissioned piece uh, at first that was commissioned by the NAACP to commemorate the 100th anniversary of the Emancipation Proclamation. So it's in response to that, the topic of the piece. And it was also infused with the um, sit-ins that were happening at that time in North Carolina, Greensboro, and different different areas in the country, you know, by Cor and SNCC. So it became prescient to put the record out even sooner in response to that to 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 uh to give voice to the people that were that were engaged in this protest and uh, him and Oscar Brown Jr were uh the the vocalist and an actor were working together to formulate the piece uh, it eventually wound up being Max that kind of took it and made it his own but there was a lot of the you know lyrics and things of that nature that were Oscar Brown Jr's but it was manufactured and all the music was was Max. And it was in response to the situation at, at hand, not only in America, but also in South Africa, which is like incredible for that particular time. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was banned in South Africa. <laughs> the recording was banned, you know, the way they would ban recordings that are going to incite the people. It was given a voice to the people, you know, in a quote unquote jazz format. But then also on the musical tip, there was also a lean to the extemporaneous. It's funny when you're reading the uh, some of some of the uh, reviews and they start calling it an avant-garde record, right. which is funny. I'm like, really? That's okay. It's funny when people put labels like that on it. But at that time, that's how it was being labeled and received to a certain degree. Actually, he 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 said that he had, had some conversations with John Coltrane, and got John Coltrane commented on the album and saying like he really enjoyed those those areas where it seemed like there wasn't being the uh, activity was not being dictated by the uh, harmonic content. He was like, I like the way that the freedom that you're the feeling. And he was like, you know, the openness. He was like, I'm, I'm going in that direction. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. was like, I'm coming. Yeah. And as you can see, you know, like interstellar space, sunship, he, was, he, he, he arrived there, yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah, he did. So those aspects were a component of the, uh, of the work. And it became a very important piece in terms of, of world uh, protest uh, artistry. Yeah. Yeah. I'm really excited to see you all. And I want to invite everyone listening to get up to Newark, New Jersey. You've still got time. Yes. Um, January 26th. We're going to be Jersey in the House Performing Arts Center. Checking that out. With, and, um, with Cassandra Wilson in the yes. role of Abby Lincoln. Hey, man. Exactly. Ooh, that's <laughs> and, good to be, yeah. uh, and you've got Robbie Coltrane. Robbie, speaking Robbie. Of, speaking yeah. of his father. Yes. Coltrane. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Uh, Ravi is going to be joining us. Uh, Deduzu, Makatini, uh, oh, wow. pianist. Speaking of the South African connection. See, and we, it's all coming we're, together. We're connecting yeah. it. We're connecting yeah. the dots. Yeah. Eric Rivas is playing bass. Josh Evans is playing trumpet. Jordan Young is playing alto. Luis Bonilla is playing trombone. 
We have uh, Kwaku Sumbri on um, Djembe. Uh, Kwaku, who's working with Emmanuel from Philly, just to give your Philly Philly people oh, a yeah. shout out. Oh yeah, yeah Philly Philly shout out. What that Kwaku's uh, in his band. He's an incredible young drummer. He's playing uh, Djembe. Uh, Melvis Santa, she's playing um, Bata, mm. and and um, and Zafar Tawil. He's a, mm. a Palestinian percussionist. Okay that plays a uh, doombeck and frame drum and i've worked with him with amir el safar for like the last 15 20 years uh he's incredible and i i thought that that's that's important to, to be bringing these different voices especially at this time um in in the world uh all these activities and what that happened and we're bringing it all together everybody's coming together for this for this concert we also have uh, allison shots who's an incredible artist she's doing the videography and then we have uh, incredible spoken word um, artists, Saul Williams and Sonia Sanchez. So it's going to just be chock full, <laughs> <laughs> chock full of activity. Starting out the centennial year yes. on a very high note. Yes. Man. Yes. yes. Cultural Expo. Yeah. Now yes. we will be there. Thank you, brother, for making time for us today, man. We really appreciate this dialogue. And the illumination of of, of Max. Uh, yes, I could talk for hours, and, and y'all are my people. Uh, thank you for having me. We want to thank the Sheep Waits again for being with us, and at the New Jersey Performing Arts Center, January twenty sixth, we insist. Nasheed Waits with Cassandra Wilson and the Duzo Makathini, Ravi Coltrane, and many more. Eric Rivas. Don't miss it. You know, if that concert is even half as illuminating as our conversation was, it's going to be one to remember. I've um, booked my ticket already. Man. Thank you, Nasheed. Um, hey, Greg, I, mm -hmm. I, I think we should bring back something that we used to do. Bring it back. Um, you know, we're always comparing notes on like, man, have you heard this? Have mm -hmm. you been checking this out? So here on The Late Set, we are going to reignite a feature that we like to call This I Dig. We've got to do it because um, there's so many things that come across our desks that we want to share with you. Sometimes we have... Um, Limited amounts of space and time, uh, but we're going to designate this time uh, to talk about, uh, first of all, uh, JMI recordings. Um, mm. I got this random Instagram inbox. Hey, we'd like to send you some of our stuff. Okay. <laughs> Little did I know <laughs> what they were going to send. Um, I'm a vinyl junkie, Nate. You know me. Yeah. Um, the folks out there may not know that. Um, but I'm a real stickler for certain vinyl, and I'll be more honest in I try to hunt and search down these original pressings. So although I love new rec records, new vinyl, they aren't always at the top of my you know, want list. Okay. But when they are done with the precision mm -hmm. and the quality of JMI, oh my God, not only does the sound quality leap out of the speaker, but the craftsmanship and the work of the actual packaging glossy gate folds, plenty of details and information for nerds like me, but very unique pairings. Uh, Lage Loon, for instance, his trio album with Matt Brewer and Tashan Sori mm. is poetic. Um, Sasha Berliner, 
uh, the vibraphonist, with Bernice Travis and, and Marcus Gilmore, these interesting configurations, almost in the mind of a blue note or a prestige, not working bands, but bands that could work, mm -hmm. and the demonstration uh, that they're providing for a, a strong case of being a band, it's all right here. So I wanted to shout out uh, JMI Recordings. They've got a really hip one in the pipeline with David Murray and Questlove, among mm -hmm. others. Yeah. Um, Plum is the band. Are we going to hear any of these JMI uh, cuts on the air at RTI? You this will. Is... Yes, you oh, will. That's, that's great. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, I, I'm glad you mentioned that. They're, they are, you know, a little bit under the radar. I'm glad you shouted them out. I'm going to go with something that is slightly more above the radar. Okay. You mentioned Blue Note just now, and um, one of the new releases in this quarter from Blue Note Records is by a wonderful young vibraphonist that we both admire, Joel Ross. Yes. His album is called New Blues, one word. And it's being framed as a blues and ballads album, mm -hmm. which is, um, you know, you think about like John Coltrane and, you know, there's, yeah. there's a certain programmatic idea that, I mean, I can't think of the last time, maybe J.D. Allen is, is the, yeah. last, the last example of somebody uh -huh. who sort of presented an album with this concept. Right. Um, but Joel is doing it his way with the perspective of his generation. Um, he's got Emmanuel Wilkins on alto saxophone, Jeremy Corrin on piano, uh, Kanoa Mendenhall on bass, and Jeremy Dutton on drums. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, this is a, a really great band record. Um, it's an album that includes some repertoire that we recognize, you know, Monk's Evidence. Yeah. Um, speaking of Coltrane, um, there's a version of Equinox and That's a version great. of Central Park West on this album. So. It's one that I feel like really puts forward Joel's connection to the, the tradition, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. uh, and in a way that is, is really beautifully done. Well, it's already warming my ears and hopefully the ears of our listeners. I've been playing the singles already on Evening Jazz at WRTI. Make sure to check us out. And I'm sure uh, we'll be hearing more from you, Nate, about this. But I'm glad you designated this time to put the spotlight on Joel Ross. He's incredible. And New Blues is too. The Late Set is a production of WRTI and made possible by WRTI members. It's hosted by me, Nate Chenan, and Greg Bryant. The show is produced by Alex Arif. Special thanks to Al Freeman and Penn Live Arts. WRTI's operations manager is Joe Patty, and director of production is Tyler McClure. Associate general manager for content and programming is Josh Jackson, and Bill Johnson is WRTI's general manager. Stop by WRTI.org to see everything else we're cooking up here in Philadelphia and beyond. We'll see you again soon.